Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, the Pharisee phenomenon. Now we all know who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the Jews in Jesus's day. And there are many stories in the New Testament about the arguments and confrontations that Jesus got into with the Pharisees. It is quite common in the LDS church to paint a caricature of Jesus as someone who was all loving all the time. 24-7, Jesus loves everybody. But anybody who actually spends any time reading the four Gospels in the New Testament know that that is not the case. Jesus certainly was a loving, accepting, kind, and supportive individual to the displaced, to the outcast, to those who were marginalized within his religious system. But when it came to the leaders of that religious system, Jesus was not loving, he was not kind, and he was anything but supportive. In fact, he was confrontational and bombastic. He did not simply go to the Pharisees himself behind closed doors and express his disagreements. No, he did it publicly and he did it frequently. And this conflict ultimately ended up in Jesus getting crucified. I remember hearing this characterization of Jesus as all loving being taught from the pulpit at a sacrament meeting a few years ago. And I remember the thought coming to my mind, well, you have to step on somebody's toes somewhere along the way if you're going to end up getting crucified. And it was the Pharisees on whose toes Jesus stepped heavily and often. What was it about the Pharisees that Jesus did not like? Well, there are a number of qualities that go into being a Pharisee. Some of them are relatively harmless. Some are in the middle. And at the outer end of the spectrum, some of those attributes are harmful indeed. And I suppose you could have a scale of 1 to 10 on how harmful these attributes of a Pharisee are. On the low end of the scale is a person who is full of themselves, who is self-righteous, who thinks that they're better than everybody else. We all know people like that. And in some degree, we probably have some element of the Pharisee in each of us. But we all know people who think that they're better than everybody else, that think that they are the smartest person in any room. And this element of the Pharisee is usually not very harmful. It's something that we can typically laugh at and find humorous. And here I think of the television show Frasier, hugely popular. But the entire premise of the show is based upon people who think that they are smarter and more cultured and better than everybody else. And we get a chance to laugh at them because it's so ridiculous. I remember once when Frasier was talking to his younger brother Niles about back when they were children and Niles quips, oh yes, that was back when I thought the 1812 Overture was a great piece of music. And I thought that was hysterical because he's just so pompous and so full of himself and we can laugh at that. The problem is though that when a person who is full of themselves and self-righteous gets put in a position of authority, then frequently that person can start imposing those beliefs of self-righteousness on other people. That the other people below them have to measure up to their level of righteousness. And if they don't, then they are marginalized in some way. They are treated as less than. And so when a Pharisee gets put in a position of authority, then it becomes more harmful. It starts sliding up this scale of 1 to 10. Another thing that Pharisees do is that frequently they want to show off how righteous they are, how much better they are than other people. 
And in order to show how much better they are than other people, they may do certain things. And they're all going to be public, remember, because it's important that the public know that they are better than others. And so these become outward performances of what it is that they do that makes them so righteous. And they do things in order to help others realize that the Pharisees are better than everybody else. This is something that Jesus found particularly appropriate in the Pharisees of his day. And finally, I'm going to add something else to this equation, which is that frequently what Pharisees do is they start focusing on the minute details of how they perform their religion and the ordinances that they perform and the way they do things so that by strict adherence to those minute details, they can also show that they are better than everybody else. And frequently, they will then criticize everybody else for not following the minute details that the Pharisees themselves created in order to show how righteous they are. Finally, at the top of the scale, a Pharisee can get to the point where he or she will actually use the religion in order to hurt other people. And this was the thing that really drove Jesus bonkers. He had this idea about religion that religion was supposed to help people. And the people that needed help were the people who needed help. They were the marginalized. They were the dispossessed. These were the people who needed the help that religion should afford. And yet he saw his leaders as doing the exact opposite. And in the name of their religion, they would end up hurting those dispossessed people and making them more marginalized and more outcast in society. This is why Jesus told one of his most famous parables as we find it in the Gospel of Luke. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you all know the parable. It is the parable about the man who was beaten up by robbers and left by the wayside for dead. A rabbi comes by, in other words, a very religious Pharisee comes by and he sees the man and he doesn't stop to help him. He walks by on the other side of the road and then another very religious man comes by who's Jewish, very Pharisaical, sees the man, looks like he's dead, doesn't stop and help him, walks by on the other side of the road. And finally, a Samaritan, the outcast, the horrible people that the Jews hate, the Pharisees especially hate, comes by, sees the man, and he goes over, helps him out, takes him to an inn, makes sure that he's taken care of, pays for his care, and then leaves on his way. Now, the implicit part of that story, which is not overtly stated because Jesus knew that his listeners would understand why it was that these Pharisees, these hyper-religious individuals, refused to stop to help this man who was beaten and left for dead by the side of the road. And the reason why is because the man looked like he was dead. The reason that these hyper-religious Jewish people did not stop and help this man who looked like he was dead lying by the side of the road is if they did stop and help him, and if he turned out to be dead and they touched him, then under the rules and regulations of the Law of Moses, that would make them ritually unclean, then they would have to spend a certain number of days going through a ceremony to make themselves ritually clean again. So here was what Jesus really found the most objectionable, which was that the Pharisees would use their religion in order to avoid helping somebody who obviously and desperately needed help. That was the worst thing that Jesus saw in the Pharisees. That was a number 10 on the Pharisee scale. This was the most harmful kind of conduct that Jesus could imagine, and there were a number of examples that he saw, and which are recorded in the New Testament, as his excoriating the Pharisees over. 
And frequently when a person is a Pharisee and they are trying to show that they're better than everybody else and they are bound up in all these rituals and minutia and focusing on all these details, some of them that they themselves create to follow, to show that they are better than other people and that other people are less than them, frequently those people are hypocrites. They don't actually follow the rules that they've set out. They just want to give the impression that they're following these rules in order to get the praise and glory of the community. And often they would focus on these minute details of their religion, while at the same time treading underfoot the people that they were supposed to be helping. And the worst thing of all was when they would claim how righteous they were for following these rules, while at the same time hurting those they were supposed to help. So frequently these people end up being hypocrites, and that's why Jesus often calls them scribes, Pharisees, and then throws in that third one, hypocrites, and then tells them what he thinks of them. And once again, he's telling this to them publicly. Lots of people are around. Lots of people are watching this. And the Pharisees are losing face. And as I say, they finally decide they've had enough of Jesus and he has got to go. Not only does Jesus stand toe-to-toe with the Pharisees publicly and speak truth to power, Jesus would even create circumstances in which he knew the Pharisees would criticize him so that he could use that opportunity to once again call them out publicly for their hypocrisy. For instance, we all know the story about Jesus healing somebody on the Sabbath. Now, this person that Jesus heals, well, they've had a lifelong difficulty or deformity or were blind from birth. They could have been healed anytime by Jesus. He could have healed them the day before the Sabbath. He could have healed them the day after the Sabbath. They've been blind since birth. What's another day going to matter? Just wait one more day. Heal this person the day after the Sabbath, Jesus. But no, he specifically chooses to heal them on the Sabbath when he knows that Pharisees are going to be watching because he wants the Pharisees to call him out for breaking the Sabbath so that he can then publicly expose their hypocrisy. So having said all that about Pharisees and what makes a Pharisee and why it was that Jesus disliked the Pharisees so much, I wanted to talk about Phariseeism in the LDS church. Now, Pharisees exist everywhere. They exist in politics. You'll have people in politics who are in power, who think that they are better than everybody else, and who make a public display of how much better they are than everybody else, and in so doing, make the lives of those under them absolutely miserable by always talking down to them, treating them as inferiors, letting them know that they can never be good enough for the Pharisee leader. It happens in business all the time. We've all had bosses who we see as Pharisees who think they're better than everybody else. They know things so much better. They won't listen to anybody else's opinion. They won't hear wisdom from anybody else. They think they're the smartest person in the room and they make the lives of all the other employees absolutely miserable. And of course, in both of these contexts, we also have the people who are employees who think that the way to get along is to suck up to the boss, right? To try and go along, to get along, to be a yes man or a yes woman to the boss and to treat them as if they really are what they think they are. They're the smartest person. Everything they say is gold. They can't do anything wrong. And so they get surrounded by these yes men, which only makes them think more and more that they really are who they think they are. So this much I think is familiar to pretty much everybody. We've all had these kind of experiences. But the one thing we have to understand about Pharisees is that they don't know that they're Pharisees. They don't recognize in themselves these attributes. They don't see that they think they're better than everybody else. They don't see that they are taking advantage of their position to make other people miserable by requiring conformity to what they themselves think is right. 
And this is the blindness that goes along with being a Pharisee that Jesus kept trying to point out to them. And it didn't do a bit of good, as you know, if you read the New Testament, because they could not see that they were being Pharisees, even though Jesus was pointing it out to them time after time after time. Instead, they got mad at him for not falling in line and doing what it was that those under the Pharisees are supposed to do, which is to suck up to them and get in line and simply do what they're told. So having set out the groundwork of what is a Pharisee, I thought it would be fun to take a little bit of time to look at elements of Phariseeism in the LDS Church. And in the first part of this podcast, I just want to tell a few stories from my personal experience that illustrate Phariseeism in the church. And actually, one of the stories will illustrate the opposite of that in the LDS Church, because I do want to show both sides of the issue. And in the last part of this episode, I'm going to talk about elements of Phariseeism among the leaders of the church. Because once again, when you deal with this attitude among the members of the church, it's something that can be laughed at, that can be disregarded and made fun of. But when a person becomes a leader in the church, and still has those attributes. And I'm not saying that all of them have these attributes, but some of them certainly do. And I'll let you judge where on the Pharisee scale of 1 to 10 they fall. But when a person like this becomes a leader of the church, that's when the trouble starts. And that's when they start acting like the New Testament Pharisees that Jesus decried. Okay, now I want to tell you a few stories about my personal experiences with Phariseeism in the LDS Church. Some of them have to do with the exact opposite of Phariseeism in the LDS Church, and those are the points at which I am the most proud of the LDS Church. And you'll see what I mean when we get to those stories, but the first story has to do with an event that occurred shortly after I was baptized in 1978. There was a church meeting of some sort. It was a small meeting. It was at somebody's house. I can't remember the nature of the meeting. All I remember is that I was asked to give the closing prayer. Now, I've given hundreds, if not thousands, of prayers since then, and it's no big deal anymore. But this was the first time I had been asked to give a prayer in public. And even though there's only a few people present, I was very nervous about it. And I remember closing in the name of Jesus Christ, and I said, Amen. And everybody said, Amen. And we were getting ready to go. And the father of one of my friends, his last name was Hanny, H-A-N-N-I, Mr. Hanny, Brother Hanny, pulled me aside and he told me, you know, Radio Free Mormon, you're really coming along well in the church, but I just wanted to tell you something. We don't say amen when we close prayers in the LDS church. They say amen in other churches. We don't say that here. We say amen. So I just wanted to let you know that. And he said it in a very friendly way and there was nothing condemning about it, but I remembered this. It was a very small thing to have happen and for me to remember 40 years later, but I do remember it. And I think this was my first experience with Phariseeism in the LDS Church. Now, it's not a big deal. It's not a leader of the church forcing this on other people, but it is a person whom I looked up to as a leader telling me that we have a specific way of pronouncing amen at the end of a prayer. It's different from the way they do it in other churches, but we say it right here in the LDS Church because this is the right church and this is the right way to say it. So I tucked that away in the back of my mind and believe me, after that, anytime I gave a prayer, I said amen and not amen. The second story has to do with a ward camp out. This would have been in July 
1978. I've been a member of the church for only about a month and a half now. The entire ward is going out for a camp out in celebration of Pioneer Day. An evening is coming on. I'm sitting by the fire with a retired union worker who's a member of the church named Carl Sandell. And obviously he's much older than I am. He's been a member of the church much longer than I have. And he is an authority figure to me as a new member in the church. We're sitting there side by side in camping chairs at the fire pit. And the young women go out to start gathering firewood for the fire. I start getting out of my chair because I would rather actually go be with the young women collecting firewood than sitting next to a retired teamster. But as soon as I make a move to get out of my chair and go help the girls pick up the firewood, Carl Sandell reaches out, puts his hand on my knee to prevent me from getting up and says to me, that's not a job for the priesthood. Once again, this was a small thing, but I understood the message. The message was that the holders of the priesthood did not busy themselves with the menial tasks of picking up firewood for a fire. No, instead, they sat at the camping chair, and those who were less than, i.e., those who did not hold the priesthood, i.e., the women folk, go out and do the menial task of collecting the firewood, and we simply sat there and presided over the fire, which they had created by going out and getting the firewood in the first place. This did not sit right with me. Even at the time, this did not sit right with me. And yet, obviously, there are other people for whom it would sit right, that it would make sense. And Carl Sandell was obviously one of those people. Now, both of these stories are small incidents, and yet they are ingrained on my memory. And they illustrate another part of Phariseeism and how it gets perpetuated in a church, which is that when leaders of the church or senior members of the church or people that other members look up to in the church start acting in pharisaical ways like this, it sets an example for the other members, such as myself at the campfire, that we are expected to act in the same way. And if we don't, we are somehow wrong. We are outside the group. We are outside the inner ring. And in order to be in that inner ring, we have to join with the leaders in their Phariseeism. Now it's time for me to tell a story on myself. I'm still a new member of the church. I'm the only member of the church in my family. We live on a lake. There's a sailboat that is out there on the dock, and it is a Sunday afternoon. It's a beautiful day. My parents want to go sailing, and they ask me if I want to go along with them. And I declined to go out with them because it was the Sabbath, and I wanted to keep the Sabbath day holy. Looking back on that experience, I can see that what I was doing was I was giving obedience to the letter of the law while at the same time violating the greater law, which would be to spend time with my family and with my parents. And now that they are both deceased, I look back on that time with even more regret. That would have been time I could have spent with them, time that I will never be able to get back again. And to be completely honest with you, I want you to know the internal dialogue that was going on in my mind at the time, because in my mind, I really didn't want to go out with them on that boat. It didn't have anything to do with the Sabbath. I just didn't really want to go out with them. That wasn't my cup of tea. But what I ended up doing was using my church membership and my ostensible obedience to the law of God in order to get me off the hook from doing what it was I didn't want to do while at the same time making myself look religious and righteous. And yes, I admit it, self-righteous. 
The next story has to do with long after I am a member of the church. It is now 1990. I have graduated from college as an undergrad. I have graduated from college with a law degree. I have moved to a different state to take my first job in a local prosecuting attorney's office. And I have been there for about a year. It is now Thanksgiving of 1990 and there has been a great deal of rain and the river is flooding. Now this is a major river. It flows through the little city where I work. And the river is flooding so much that it's getting to the point where it's going to crest, it's going to overflow the banks, and that water is going to go into the buildings that are next to it in the city. And hundreds of people from the community are gathering downtown to put sand in sandbags and then to create a long wall of sandbags to keep this water from flooding into the city. It is a Sunday when this is happening. It is an emergency. And I remember going to church that day and at the very beginning of sacrament meeting, the bishop stands up and says, the river is flooding. We need hands down there at the river to sandbag. So we are canceling the meetings for today and I want every able-bodied person to get out there and help with the sandbagging. That was the opposite of Phariseeism. And frankly, I cannot remember a time when I was more proud to be a Mormon than that day because this was the opposite. This was not sitting there in church thinking we are going to keep the Sabbath day holy. We're not going to violate it by going out there and sandbagging to keep the flooding river from going into downtown. We're going to get out there and help because there's a higher law that is in effect here. And my bishop at the time, Bishop Walker, bless his soul, realized that and acted upon it. Another story along those lines has to do with my mission. Now, I went to Japan on my mission and we had an incredible mission president. His name was Stout, President Robert Stout. He was an amazing man. He was a powerful and charismatic individual and all the missionaries had no doubt that the time would come when President Stout would become a general authority in the church. Unfortunately, that never happened because I think the church would have been the better for having President Stout be a general authority. But on to my story. So a little bit about missions for those of you who don't know. We have a mission area. It was in Kobe, Japan. And in this mission, there are about 200 missionaries. And the missionaries are distributed throughout the area. They are in different apartments. And each apartment has four missionaries in it. And we call that a district. Missionary life was highly regimented. We were up at 6.30 in the morning. We would bathe, we would get breakfast, and then we would engage in group scripture study for an hour. And then we would do personal study for another hour. And then we would get dressed, we'd put on our shirt, we'd put on our tie, we'd be out the door by 10.30. That was the mission rule. Well, in one of these districts, not my district, but a separate district, there was a certain missionary who was extremely righteous and he was so righteous that he did not wait until 10:30 to put on his tie and his white shirt he would put on his white shirt and tie after breakfast and before group scripture study now everybody else all the other missionaries are there in their casuals maybe in their pajamas as they're reading the scriptures together for this first hour of group scripture study which really is just reading the scriptures together but this one elder was in his white shirt and tie because he wanted to be righteous. He wanted to show that he was righteous by what he was wearing. And worse than that, he wanted everybody else to be as righteous as he was being. So this is an example of this Phariseeism, right? He's righteous. He's going to show he's righteous by wearing his shirt and tie during group scripture study. And then he's going to want to impose his righteousness on everybody else and make them conform to the way he does things so that they can all be as righteous 
as he is. Now, what he ended up being was, of course, a royal pain in the ass. And none of the other missionaries went along with him. They refused to put on their white shirt and tie for scripture study like this one missionary did. The story gets better. So sometime after this, we are having a mission conference, and that's where all the missionaries, all 200 missionaries, go to the mission home to be addressed by the mission president, maybe by a visiting general authority. But at the end of this particular conference, President Stout opened it up for questions and answers. And sure enough, this one missionary, this super righteous missionary, was waving his hand like Arnold Horshack, begging to be called on so he could ask his question to President Stout. President Stout calls on him, and the missionary says in front of all the other 200 missionaries, President Stout, every morning before we have group scripture study, I put on my white shirt and my tie because I think it's important to show proper respect while we're studying the scriptures. Don't you think this is something that everybody in the mission should do? And an absolute hush fell over the chapel where we were having this meeting because the other missionaries were going, oh no, I can't believe it. Please, please, President Stout, don't go along with him. Don't make us put on our white shirts and ties like this guy for group scripture study in the morning. You could have heard a pin drop in that room. So the missionary asks his question. President Stout stops for a second, thinks about it, and then he responds in the following words. You know, Elder So-and-so, I don't think Jesus is really fond of neckties. And this one missionary was completely deflated, but a silent cheer went up from all the other missionaries in the room. Because here we had a self-righteous and, dare I say it, pharisaical missionary who did not have the power or authority to make other people conform to what he wanted them to do. But he knew that the mission president had that authority, and he wanted the mission president to endorse this particular brand of Phariseeism and impose it on everybody else. And President Stout, God bless him, and rest his soul, because I understand he's passed away now, but God bless him, says, no, we're not doing that. And he even lets him know, I don't think Jesus Christ really likes neckties, Elder. And I suppose when you think about it, that's probably true, because I don't see a lot of pictures of Jesus wearing a necktie. So once again... This elder shows Phariseeism, but President Stout showed the exact opposite. He was not going to go there. He was not going to endorse that brand of Phariseeism. So that's another example of a story that is the opposite of Phariseeism in the church. And now I have to tell a certain story on myself again. This has to do with a certain elder at the Missionary Training Center. Now, we were in a group of about 20 different elders. We all met together. We all studied Japanese together. We were a unit, and that's what we called a district in the MTC. We're at the MTC in Provo, and one of these elders' names who's in my group is Elder Shilamat. I think he was from Vermont or New Hampshire, and he definitely had the accent, but it's pretty unusual to have a Mormon at the MTC who is from New England, so he kind of stood out. He stood out in another way, and the other way he chose to stand out was by getting up early every morning and going into the lounge area on the floor where we were located and reading the scriptures for an hour and a half before everybody else had to get up. So we all have to get up at 6.30 in the morning. Lights are out at 10.30 at night. We have to be up at 6.30 in the morning. Our district then gets up. We go, we get ready for the day. But Elder Shilamat would get up an hour and a half before that. He would get up at five o'clock in the morning. 
and go out there and study scriptures in the lounge area. And when I say lounge area, I just mean an area that has a couple of couches there that is separate and apart from his room because he can't be doing it in his room because everybody else is still asleep with the lights out. And it is clear to me that he must have been broadcasting in some way how righteous he was by getting up at five o'clock and reading the scriptures because that's how I found out about it. I wasn't up that early. I wouldn't have known about it because he slept in a different room from the room I slept in. In the room I slept in, there were four missionaries. There are two bunk beds and their desks, right? So there are four missionaries per room. He's in a different room than the one that I'm in. So I wouldn't have known about it unless he let us know that he was getting up early. So in other words, it's not enough for him just to get up early to read the scriptures. He wants to broadcast it to other people. And frankly, that got under my skin a little bit. A common reaction to self-righteousness is that it gets under our skin. And I was no exception when I heard about Elder Shilamak getting up at five o'clock in the morning to study the scripture. So I decided that Elder Shilamat needed to be taught a lesson. So here's what I did. Lights were out at 10.30 one night. I was in the top bunk in my room with the lights out, but I was not going to sleep. I waited. I waited until 10.45. I waited until 11 o'clock. I waited until 11.15 because I wanted to make sure that everybody in Elder Shilamat's room, and particularly Elder Shilamat, was asleep before I put my plan into effect. So it's about 11.30, everybody's gotta be asleep by now. I get out of my top bunk bed, I go to the door, I go out the door, I go down the hallway to Elder Shilamat's room, and I very quietly and carefully open the door on his room. Lights are out, I sneak in, I can hear the sounds of breathing, deep breathing. That's a good sign. It means everybody's asleep. I make my way over, tiptoeing to Elder Shilamat's bed. Fortunately, he was not on the top bunk. He was on the bottom bunk. And I can just barely see what I'm doing by the light that's coming in through the open doorway. I sneak over to his bed. I reach for his alarm clock. I pick up his alarm clock. I find the little knob on the back. And I very slowly move it ahead two hours. Because as you can guess, my plan was that when Elder Shilamat's alarm clock goes off at five o'clock in the morning, it will actually be three o'clock in the morning, but he won't know the difference. And he'll be out there from three o'clock studying his scriptures. And as time goes by, he'll be wondering why it is the other missionaries aren't getting up. And eventually he'll figure it out and the joke will be on him. I put his alarm clock back, I sneak out of the room, I close the door very carefully. And as I'm walking back to my room, I look up and I realize there's a big industrial sized clock sticking out of the wall right above the water fountain and right in the direction that Elder Shilamat will get up and walk out before he goes studying his scriptures. This clock has two faces. There's one face that's pointing toward him and one face that's pointing in the other direction. So I realize that if he looks up and sees that clock and it's different from the time he thinks it is, then game over, the prank will be blown. So I grab a chair, pull it over to the clock, get up on the chair, open up the glass face of the clock, reach in and manually move that clock ahead two hours as well. So that when Elder Shilamat sees it, everything will seem totally right and he'll still think it's five o'clock in the morning when actually it's three o'clock in the morning. So I've done my night's work. I'm getting tired by this point. It's probably around midnight and I go to bed, I hit the hay and I get a good night's sleep. Now the next day, I was able to find out what happened from another missionary in the district, and that was Elder Plant, P-L-A-N-T-E. Because Elder Plant 
had his room at the far end of the hallway on the other side of the clock. And what happened was that Elder Plant got up at 3.30 in the morning and he was thirsty. So he gets out of his room, comes walking down from his side of the clock, looks up, he can see it's 3.30 because it's 3.30. He doesn't know that on the other side it shows it's 5.30, but he gets a drink from the drinking fountain. And as he's getting the drink, he looks over and he sees Elder Shilamat sitting there in his white shirt and tie reading his scriptures. And Elder Plant says, what are you doing? And Elder Shilamet says, well, I'm reading the scriptures. And Elder Plant says, boy, you sure are diligent. And <laughs> and Elder Shilamet says, well, I like to try and get up at five o'clock in the morning and get in an extra hour and a half of scripture study before everybody else gets up. And Elder Plant looks at him and he looks up at the clock and he looks back at him again. He says, Elder Shilamet, it's 3.30 in the morning. And the only reason I found out about this was because Elder Plant told me about it later. Now, was that a nice thing to do? No, it wasn't. Was it a kind thing to do? No, it wasn't. Was it a Christ-like thing to do? Well, maybe. Because this is the kind of thing that Jesus would do to the Pharisees to point up the fact that they're being Pharisees and to call them on it. So this may have been the most Christ-like thing I ever did when I was at the Missionary Training Center. So these are all kind of fun stories, stories that really don't have that much significance as far as the way the church operates. But what I want to do now is I want to go through a number of instances where church leaders today and in my lifetime and in my membership in the church have done or said things that fall somewhere on the Pharisee scale from 1 to 10. Now you may think it's a 1, you may think it's a 5, you may think it's a 10, you may think it doesn't belong on there at all. I'll leave that up to you to judge. We can make a game of it. I'll go through each of these examples and you can make your own decision as to where that falls on the Pharisee scale. Because of course the huge difference is that when leaders of the church begin acting in Pharisaical ways, they have the power to enforce it on the other members of the church. For example, President Stout from my earlier story, my mission president, if he had picked up on that elder suggestion that everybody wear ties and white shirts for group scripture study in the morning, he had the power to enforce it on everybody else. So that's the huge difference. A Pharisee can't really be a Pharisee unless they're in a position of authority where they can enforce their Phariseeism. Otherwise, it's just something that's kind of funny. We can laugh at it. We can have a chuckle, but it's not something that becomes problematic, and it's not something that can then be used to coerce others to your level of righteousness and at the same time allow you to be judgmental on those who don't measure up to your extraordinarily high standard. And the thing that got me thinking about this whole subject was Elder Dallin Oaks, who went to Chicago, Illinois, in February of 2019, and he was there during their priesthood meeting, and he was recorded surreptitiously. He didn't know he was being recorded, but in the context of this priesthood meeting, he ends up saying something that struck me as very pharisaical. He noticed that in the sacrament meeting, which had just preceded it, a number of the deacons, the young men with the priesthood, who were passing the sacrament, had partaken of the sacrament with their left hand instead of using their right hand. And this is something that bothered Elder Oaks enough that he made mention of it during the priesthood meeting in Chicago. Play the tape. I come to see what happens when I'm not here. But I had an impression from the Spirit of the Lord to teach something 
to each of you, and particularly the young men of the Aaronic priesthood, because I saw something in sacrament meeting today that told me that some of you don't understand something. The sacrament is an ordinance of the gospel. And because it's an ordinance, it needs to be done exactly right. Just like the prayers that the priests offer, uh, they have to say the exact language in the prayer. Because it's a priesthood ordinance. Just like baptism. The Lord taught us when we are baptized, the priest who officiates raises his right hand and says, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And then he immerses the person in the water. And if that's not done exactly that way, it has to be done again. Now, the first time I heard this recording, I did find it mildly humorous that Elder Oaks gets the baptismal prayer wrong. He does not say it exactly right. When you say it exactly right, you say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So at the same time that he is insisting on strict obedience and conformity to the way the ordinances are performed, he's getting it wrong himself. Nobody calls him on this, but I can't imagine I'm the only one who saw it. Going on with the tape. Now, when we partake of the sacrament, young men and young women, we are renewing the act of baptism. And we're promising the Lord again what we promised in baptism, that we keep his commandments. And also, he promises to renew the effect of our baptism so that we're cleansed from our sins when we partake of the sacrament, if we've repented of them. But now there's something about the right hand. When we're baptized, the priest raises his right hand, not his left hand, but his right hand. And when we partake of the sacrament, we partake with our right hand, not our left hand. And today, I saw quite a few of the deacons take the sacrament with their left hand. Don't do that, because you set the wrong example for the congregation if you do that. I know why you did that, because the sacrament tray was coming up on this side, and it was easiest to do it that way. But a mother who's holding a baby probably changes the baby so she can use her right hand. And all of us should partake of the right hand when we participate in that great ordinance of the gospel. That's what I felt impressed to share with you. And I often mention that in other meetings, but I've never seen so many deacons take the sacrament with their left hand, so I thought I'd better perform my responsibility to share that with you. God bless you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So when I heard this audio of Dallin Oaks, I immediately thought that this was a classic example of how the LDS Church has more and more come to focus on the minute details of how they perform their rituals. And it made me think how an excessive focus on this kind of minutia of how rituals are performed can serve as a basis to judge others who are not performing the rituals precisely, even in the minutia, even in the made-up minutia. And I also thought that if Jesus had been attending the Chicago ward with Elder Oaks on that day, he would have called out Elder Oaks 
on his hyper-religiosity. He would have let him know that it doesn't make any difference what hand you partake of the sacrament with. What makes a difference is the state of your heart and how you treat other people. And how part of treating other people with love involves not judging them on this hyper-religious minutia. In fact, the New Testament Jesus would have intentionally taken the sacrament with his left hand in front of Elder Dallin Oaks specifically to cause him to make this kind of comment so that Jesus could then call him out on it publicly in front of everybody else to show everybody else how pompous, how self-righteous, and how pharisaical Elder Oaks was acting. But maybe I'm making too much of this one incident. Are there any other examples of how modern LDS leaders do and teach things that Jesus found objectionable 2,000 years ago with the leaders of his religion. I've given it some thought, and I've come up with a dozen or so. Are you ready to play the Pharisee game? Let's get started. Example number one has to do with general conference, and specifically, the seating arrangement. Any of us who have attended or watched general conference know that the general authorities of the church have special chairs in which they sit. They are up on the podium and they are ranked row upon row. In the first row, the row closest to the audience, sit the apostles and the members of the first presidency. Now, the special chairs that the general authorities sit in are different than the chairs that the membership sit in in the audience. These chairs are large, they are plush, they are upholstered in dark red, it appears to be velvet, and they have high backs on their chairs. These are executive chairs. These are the best chairs in the house. And even among the general authorities themselves, there appear to be better chairs for better general authorities, or at least more plush, more expensive chairs for the higher ranking general authorities. You will note that the general authorities that are 70 sit behind the apostles. The apostles have the front row. And I cannot tell from looking at pictures, but it may be that the backs of their chairs are a little bit higher than the chairs of the general authority 70 who sit behind them. Even among the apostles, there is a ranking as far as chairs go. The 12 apostles have very, very nice chairs. Make no mistake about that. But the nicest chairs of all are reserved for the members of the First Presidency who sit immediately to the right of the pulpit. And when I say right, I mean stage right, facing the audience. They sit immediately to the right of the pulpit. And who sits on the right of certain things in the LDS Church has greater prominence and preeminence than somebody who sits on the left of certain things, which we'll see here in a second. The chairs themselves in which the First Presidency sit have wings. These are wingback chairs. And if you look closely at the pictures, as I have, these actually have nice wings. These are the best chairs in the house. The chairs that the other apostles sit in are similar to the chairs in which the first presidency sit, but they do not have wings. So the three members of the first presidency sit immediately to the right of the podium. They have three wingback chairs, the best chairs in the house, and the person who sits in the middle is the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The person to his immediate right is the first counselor in the presidency, and the person who sits to his left is the second counselor in the first presidency. But the main thing to note here is the chairs, the niceness of the chairs, the plushness of the chairs, the location of the chairs, and the fact that the chairs get better and more plush 
as you go further and further up the hierarchy in the LDS church. Now compare this to what Jesus said to the Pharisees in the gospel, specifically the gospel of Matthew chapter 23 verse 6. Now the entirety of Matthew chapter 23 is devoted to Jesus excoriating the Pharisees for all the problems that he saw with them. So a number of these quotes which we'll be using throughout the rest of the podcast come from Matthew chapter 23. Although there are some that come from other places in the gospel, you'll see a lot of them coming from Matthew 23. And that is why one of the things here that Jesus found fault with the Pharisees and criticized them about was the fact that they loved the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. Well, the synagogues were obviously where the Jewish people met every Sabbath for their religious services. So there's a direct equation between synagogues and churches and between churches and general conference. So whether this applies to the general authorities of the LDS Church, I will leave it for you to decide. And where it falls on the Pharisee scale, I will leave it for you to decide. It does seem to me, however, that there is some degree of correlation between Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees for loving the chief seats in the synagogues and the seating arrangement and the seats themselves of the general authorities in general conference. And of course, we see this not only in general conference, but to some degree we see it replicated every Sunday at church where although the seats themselves are not so much better than the seats in which the audience sits the bishopric does sit in a similar order and a similar location relative to the lectern as the first presidency does in general conference they are above the level of the audience they are in front of the audience and once again these could be called the chief seats in the synagogues now the response to this would normally be that the bishopric has to sit up there because they preside in the meeting they are the ones who are in charge of the meeting they conduct the meeting so obviously they have to have access to ready access to the pulpit and therefore they sit in front of the audience and they sit close to the pulpit or the lectern the only thing i want to bring up here is that i'm sure that the pharisees had reasons for wanting to sit in the chief seats in the synagogues and have the uppermost rooms at feasts. And I'm sure that their reasons were not, hey, we're better than everybody else, but they had reasons that were neutral in that regard. In other words, they had good reasons for doing it that didn't mean that they were Pharisees. So we always have to be very careful when we're talking about things that we do in the LDS church that appear to be paralleled, if not replicated in the New Testament Pharisees, when we have good reasons for doing the same things. The way I read the New Testament is there may not be good reasons for doing these kinds of things. Or at a minimum, the good reasons for doing these kinds of things are substantially outweighed by the bad reasons for doing these kinds of things. Example number two has to do with the wearing of white shirts by men in the LDS church, and specifically by leaders. Although it is not only leaders who wear white shirts in the LDS church, white shirts are worn pretty much by every man who attends church. Now this has not always been this way. It has not always been the case that all men have worn white shirts to church. In fact, Bill Reel sent me a picture of a priesthood general conference meeting in 1972. This isn't a picture of the leadership of the church. This is a picture of all the men, the members of the priesthood who were attending the church in the audience. And in this picture from 1972, I was frankly surprised to see a huge array of colors in the shirts that the men were wearing to priesthood meeting. Now, if you fast forward to today, and for the last many years, at least as far as I can remember back, all the men who go to priesthood meeting wear white shirts now. There's been a huge 
change between different colored shirts in 1972 and all white shirts today. Now, where did this come from and why this change? Because I think that we all understand as men that if we go to church today, we're expected to wear a white shirt. And if we want to fit in and show our conformity, we wear a white shirt and usually a conservative tie along with that shirt. Always a tie, but usually a conservative tie along with that white shirt. I think we all understand as men that if we wear a shirt to church that is something other than white, that has colored or has a pattern in it, that we are signaling something. And what we are signaling is nonconformity. That is how strong the impetus for wearing white shirts to LDS church meetings has become that we all recognize if we were something different hey we're standing out and we're making some kind of a statement whatever that statement may be but as i say it has not always been that way and approximately 45 or 48 years ago in 1972 it was not that way so i went and did a little research and i found a few statements from general conference and other authorities regarding the wearing of a white shirt now also notice that there is never a commandment that is given to wear a white shirt instead these are words of counsel, words of advice, words of suggestion. And yet the LDS Church takes these words of advice, counsel, and suggestion, and much like the word of wisdom, which we'll get to here in a bit, we have interpreted these now to be commandments as opposed to simply suggestions, or at least suggestions that we are certainly going to follow. Let's first go back to General Conference of 1995. This is October 1995. Elder Holland is speaking. And when he is speaking, he talks about the suggestion, and he calls it a suggestion, that wherever possible, a white shirt be worn by the deacons, teachers, and priests who handle the sacrament. And in this talk from 1995, he's going to quote President David O. McKay from a general conference back in 1956. So we can at least go back to 1956 on this with David O. McKay with the prophetic suggestion that the men wear white shirts, and at least specifically the deacons, teachers, and priests wear white shirts. So play the tape. Live your best and look your best when you participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. May I suggest that wherever possible, a white shirt be worn by the deacons, teachers, and priests who handle the sacrament. For sacred ordinances in the Church, we often use ceremonial clothing, and a white shirt could be seen as a gentle reminder of the white clothing you wore in the baptismal font and an anticipation of the white shirt you will soon wear into the temple and onto your missions. That simple suggestion is not intended to be pharisaic or formalistic. We do not want deacons or priests in uniforms or unduly concerned about anything but the purity of their lives. But how our young people dress can teach a holy principle to us all, and it certainly can convey sanctity. As President David O. McKay once said, a white shirt contributes to the sacredness of the holy sacrament. So note a couple of things about this quote. First off, it's not talking about all men. It's talking about the deacons, the teachers, and the priests who handle the sacrament. And yet, that suggestion for the priests and the deacons and the teachers has become extended to all the men who attend church. We know that we go to general conference. We see all the general authorities in those chairs that I've just described, those nice red plush 
high back chairs, and all of them, without exception, are wearing a white shirt. Now this is not a coincidence. We cannot just think that out of all the colors and all the patterns in the world, somehow all of these men just independently decided to wear white shirts to general conference. No, this is something much more than coincidence. And it descends down to all of the men in the church as well as the boys in the church. Even though it's the boys who pass the sacrament who are specifically mentioned in this quote, this is something that has become extended to all men, and we'll get to that in a bit. The second thing I wanted to point out about this quote, note that Elder Holland says that simple suggestion is not intended to be Pharisaic or formalistic. Now here's what's interesting to me is that Elder Holland is aware that this could be seen as Pharisaical in nature, and yet he goes ahead and makes it anyway. You see, he sees that it could be seen as Pharisaic, and yet he wants to say it's not Pharisaic. No, it's not intended to be Pharisaic or formalistic, but it ends up having that effect of being Pharisaic and formalistic. And I think that is evidenced by the fact that every man in church, local meetings, general conference, wherever, wears a white shirt. And that is intended to signal conformity, it is intended to signal virtue, and it is intended to signal righteousness and purity. Even as Elder Holland suggests that that is the reason that white shirts should be worn by the deacons, teachers, and priests. Because how our young people dress can teach a holy principle to us all, and it certainly can convey sanctity. You see, there it is, the white shirt conveying the sanctity, conveying the purity. And then quoting President David O. McKay at the end of that statement by Elder Holland, President David O. McKay taught, a white shirt contributes to the sacredness of the Holy Sacrament. Now, it's not exactly clear how wearing a white shirt contributes to the sacredness of any ordinance, and yet that is the teaching from the leadership of the church. Going back to this thing about Pharisees, and that simple suggestion is not intended to be Pharisaic or formalistic, the thing you have to understand here is that people who are Pharisees do not know that they are Pharisees. They don't know or recognize that they are being Pharisaic. People sometimes ask me, if the leaders of the LDS Church know that they are Pharisees, and my response is always the same. Of course they don't know that they are Pharisees. Nobody knows that they are Pharisees. The Pharisees did not know that they were Pharisees. If they knew they were Pharisees, they would stop acting like Pharisees. And yet here in this quote, Elder Holland recognizes that his suggestion about wearing white shirts could be seen as being Pharisaic, but he wants to assure the audience that it's not intended to be Pharisaic. But the fact of the matter is that even though it is not intended to be Pharisaic, it can and perhaps does end up being Pharisaic, especially when you see every man in the church end up wearing white shirts, whether on the stand or in the congregation. I mean, how do you think the Pharisees became the Pharisees in the first place? It didn't happen overnight. This Mormon experience with white shirts may be a case study in exactly how this sort of thing happens and how the Pharisees become the Pharisees. So that quote was from 1995. In 2008, 13 years later, Elder Oaks repeated this counsel from Elder Holland, and he specifically repeated it so that people would not forget it. In other words, it remained in full force and effect. Play the tape. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland gave a valuable teaching on this subject in General Conference 13 years ago. Since most of our current deacons were not even born when these words were last spoken here, I repeat them for their benefit and that of their parents and teachers. Quote, 
May I suggest that wherever possible, a white shirt be worn by the deacons, teachers, and priests who handle the sacrament. For sacred ordinances in the Church, we often use ceremonial clothing, and a white shirt could be seen as a gentle reminder of the white clothing you wore in the baptismal font and an anticipation of the white shirt you will soon wear into the temple and on to your missions." End of quote. And going back even further to 1983, Elder Holland's son mentions receiving this same teaching from his dad, Elder Holland, as part of his duties as a deacon. Now you may remember Elder Holland's son. This is the son who is famous for going on a ride with his dad in a pickup truck in the desert of southern Utah and getting lost and coming to a fork in the road and praying to God to find out which road to take. And they both pray and get the confirmation from God to take one road, which ends up being the wrong road. You may remember this son. Here he has something else to tell us. And the something else he has to tell us is that when you are called upon to choose which kind of shirt to wear to church, it should be a white shirt. That is the road. You should go down the white shirt road when you're going to church. Play the tape. I also remember my father telling me a few weeks before I was ordained a deacon that he hoped whenever I prepared, blessed, or passed the sacrament, I would always wear a white shirt and a tie. I'm sure I had heard the same advice from a Sunday school teacher or read it in some manual, but it wasn't until my father said it that I intended to do it. By responding to my father's suggestions, I have shown respect for the sacred ordinance of the sacrament. And that small word of advice also helped me understand that the priesthood ordinances are not just work or assignments, but they are priceless privileges which I am grateful to take part in. So this is in 1983, and Elder Holland's son is saying that he is already aware of hearing about wearing a white shirt from advice from a Sunday school teacher or having read it in some manual, although it was not until his father suggested it that he intended to do it. So as far back as 1983, we have Elder Holland's son giving this talk in priesthood session in general conference, and already that teaching is extant in the church, in manuals, in Sunday school lessons, and certainly Elder Holland is teaching his son to wear a white shirt. In fact, it figures in the title of this talk, which is called Muddy Feet and White Shirts. Finally, we get down to 2002 April General Conference, and we have a story from Elder Ballard in which he expands the suggestion and the advice and, frankly, the necessity of wearing white shirts beyond just teachers, deacons, and priests, but to all the male membership of the church, both old and young. And the story involves the baptism of a husband and wife and their small children into the church when Elder Ballard was the mission president. So this was some time ago. Here's his story. Play the tape. When we learned that they were going to be baptized, Sister Ballard and I attended the baptismal service. I happened to be standing next to the bishop of the ward when the family arrived. In all honesty, I must tell you that they were quite a sight. They looked unkempt, unclean, and somewhat scruffy. Because he had been out of town for a period of time, the bishop had not yet met the newest members of his ward. So this first impression was, to say the least, unimpressive. But as they walked away, I thought I could feel his knees begin to buckle. I put my arm around this good bishop to give him my support, physically as well as spiritually. 
I felt prompted to say to him, Bishop, isn't this wonderful? We will make good Latter-day Saints out of them. He looked at me and smiled. I just couldn't tell if he was smiling because he agreed with me or if he thought that I might be just another over-enthusiastic missionary. The baptismal service proceeded, and the family was baptized. The next day we decided to attend the ward to make sure that the family was well-received when they came to their meetings as new members of the Church. As the family came into the chapel for the sacrament meeting, I was sitting on the stand next to the bishop. The father was wearing a clean white shirt. It was not large enough for him to button, fasten the top button at the neck, and he was wearing a tie that I could remember seeing on one of my elders. But his face radiated with happiness and peace. The mother and the daughters looked like they had been transformed from the previous day. Their dresses were not fancy, but they were clean and lovely. They, too, had special gospel glow. The little boys wore white shirts that were several sizes too large for them, even with the sleeves rolled up, and they were wearing ties that almost extended down to their knees. It was obvious that the missionaries had put their own white shirts and ties on these little boys so they could come to sacrament meeting appropriately dressed. Now notice that last sentence. These little boys were wearing white shirts that had been loaned to them by the missionaries. And Elder Ballard says, It was obvious that the missionaries had put their own white shirts and ties on these little boys so they could come to sacrament meeting appropriately dressed. So you see, the message there is if you're wearing white shirt to church, you are appropriately dressed. And obviously, the other side of the coin is that if you don't wear a white shirt to church, you are inappropriately dressed. In fact, so important is it to wear white shirts to church that it doesn't matter if they don't even fit you properly. Remember, the father's clean white shirt was so tight at the neck he could not button it. The little boy's white shirts were several sizes too large for them. But that's okay because the most important thing is that you wear white shirts. White shirts that do not fit are more appropriate than non-white shirts that do fit. That's the message here. So we can see this message about conformity and about all the men in the church, old and young, not just the priests, deacons, and teachers, all of them wearing white shirts to church. Now after we've gone through that trip down memory lane and looking at the development of this doctrine or this principle or this practice in the LDS Church of men wearing white shirts to church, what did Jesus say about the Pharisees regarding clothing? Once again, back to Matthew 23, this time verse 5. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. Well, wait a second. That just applies to your works, right? It doesn't apply to what you wear, does it? Oh, no, it does, because Jesus goes on immediately after that in the same verse to say, They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. I don't want to go into another long discourse about what phylacteries are, but what this has to do is with articles of clothing that the Pharisees wore. They were things that they wore on their bodies that could be seen by other people. The phylacteries they made larger than they normally were, and they also enlarged the borders of their garments. 
Why? So that other people could see how religious and how righteous they were. It didn't say anything about the nature of their soul or how they were inside, but instead they are broadcasting and signaling to other people their righteousness by what they wear. This seems to me to be a very similar thing to what the LDS Church suggests its men do by wearing white shirts to church. Even if they don't fit them, they wear the white shirts because they are busy signaling to the other members that they are righteous, that they conform, that they are pure, even as the ancient Pharisees did in a similar way, although with different articles of clothing. Something that's interesting to me is that in 1986, Elder Oaks in General Conference, October General Conference, talked about white shirts in a different context, and he was basically talking about affinity fraud and how men in the church, though he doesn't say they're in the church, it's obvious that's why he's addressing it. It's one of the few times that affinity fraud has actually been addressed to the members of the church with a warning to the members to not fall for it. Although it's cloaked in so much ambiguous language, it's hard to get that message out of it unless you already know that that is what is being talked about. But in the context of this talk, Elder Oaks talks about the fact that they wear white shirts and that by wearing the white shirts, they are signaling their virtue which they really don't possess because they are actually thieves who are wearing white shirts in order to gain the trust of their victims. Play the tape. Difficulties of proof make fraud a hard crime to enforce, but the inadequacies of the laws of man provide no license for transgression under the laws of God. Though their method of thievery may be immune from correction in this life, sophisticated thieves in white shirts and ties will ultimately be seen and punished for what they are. He who presides over that eternal tribunal knows our secret acts, and he is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So here's the other side of the coin. Even though the leadership of the Church is encouraging, both by example and by word, that all the men in the Church wear white shirts, at least Elder Oaks in 1986 is aware of the fact on some level that these white shirts can then be used to signal a virtue which the wearer does not have and can be used in such a way as to gain the trust of his victim who he is out to try and defraud. What it does is it tends to lead members to look at what a person wears in assessing whether they can trust that person and also their position in the church, but looking at what a person wears in order to assess whether that person can be trusted. Elder Oaks recognizes that can be abused and yet continues to advocate the wearing of white shirts anyway as a symbol of one's righteousness. Or as Elder Holland said, quote, it certainly can convey sanctity, unquote. I think the bottom line is that people who are truly righteous are not as interested in conveying sanctity by what they wear as those who are not so righteous. This type of virtue signaling in the LDS Church happens in numerous other contexts. We all know that in addition to white shirts, men are not supposed to have facial hair in the church. The beards and the mustachios have got to go. And even though now and again you may see a man who sits in the congregation, i.e. a lay member, with some kind of facial hair, among the leadership of the church, facial hair is discouraged. At General Conference, you will look in vain for any kind of facial hair among any of the general authorities in the church. And this in spite of the fact that every single president of the church between Joseph Smith and David O. McKay sported some sort of facial hair. I have heard numerous stories of individuals called to leadership roles in a local level such as a bishop 
or a member of a bishopric who dared have some kind of facial hair, and those leaders were approached in short order by higher-ups requesting that they shave off the facial hair in order to fit in as an appropriate leader in the LDS Church. Now, what does facial hair have to do with a person's righteousness? Well, nothing if we're going to support all the presidents of the church between Joseph Smith and David O. McKay as being righteous. What it is meant to do is signal to the audience that these people are righteous, not by what is in their heart, not by what they do, not by what they say, but how they look, which is the very essence of Phariseeism. Now, I don't want to leave the women out of this either. We've talked about how women as well as men are not supposed to have tattoos. We've talked about how women are not supposed to have more than one pair of earrings. I think we all know that women have additional layers of expectations put on them as to how they present themselves, whether at church or out of church. At church, women are expected to wear dresses or skirts. They are not supposed to wear pants or slacks, and those dresses or skirts should come down below the knee. Additionally, the exposing of women's shoulders is a no-no, whether at church or out of church, and a woman's shoulders should always be covered appropriately and chastely by some kind of shoulder cap at a minimum. So women in the LDS church, as well as the men, cannot escape the Pharisee phenomenon. Well, it looks like this is going to be a multi-part podcast. There is just too much information to go over in one podcast, and I think this will end up being not one, not two, but actually a three-part podcast. Because when it comes to Phariseeism in the LDS Church, it is a target-rich environment. And so in closing out episode one of the Pharisee Phenomenon, I'm going to play one of my favorite songs from Billy Joel, 1979, which really goes to the heart of why Pharisees are Pharisees. It is their desire to be a big shot. That's all we have for now. Until part two, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.
had to be a teacher, teacher. You had to open up your mouth. You had to be a teacher, teacher.